0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in June 2008.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing.
1: Today we are joined by Barbara Gaines, who is the founder and the artistic director for the past 22 years of Chicago Shakespeare Theater, where this coming week you can see Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors and a show called Funk It Up About Nothing, which is a rap version of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, in early July. You'll be able to see Willy Wonka over this past season, Cymbeline, Passion, Othello, and an upcoming season which includes Amadeus, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Macbeth, Twelfth Night, very diverse uh, schedule. And we're talking today with... Barbara Gaines. Hi, Barbara. Welcome to Downstage Center.
2: Hello. I'm thrilled to be here, John.
1: Well, you've had a, a very long 22-year run since you founded Chicago Shakespeare Theater on a rooftop right. in, in Chicago at an outdoor restaurant. Here you are in a beautiful theater on Navy Pier on the shores of uh, of, of the lake overlooking the city of Chicago. Yeah. It's been a wonderful 22-year run so far. <laughs> it's
2: been the most surprising run because when um, when we started it, when I started it, It was just a dream to give Chicago a Shakespeare theater because very little Shakespeare was being done at that time, and I was going, what is going on in this city? And um, so many people, so many people, so many wonderful people that are still with us said, you're crazy. Uh, Sir Tyrone Guthrie came in the early 50s to Chicago and wanted to start a theater, and he couldn't raise any money. And someone said to me on Michigan Avenue, they said, this is like 23 years ago, they said... So, what makes you think you can do what Sir Tyrone couldn't? And I had no answer. And I never thought, I just, I was speechless because I had no idea. But what we did have, of course, was terrific actors.
0: I have to ask, with John just having read off some of the current and upcoming shows, Hmm. we hear Chicago Shakespeare Theatre, you were just recognized at the Tony Awards for Outstanding Regional Theatre. How does the Chicago Shakespeare Theater come to be doing a production that involves Willy Wonka, who, as I recall, is not a Shakespearean character? He's
2: not, but he's a theatrical character. And the one thing about me and Chris Henderson, my executive director, who's the living genius I work with, is that we don't like rules and we don't like to be categorized. And while our soul is Shakespeare, uh, we just are looking for wonderful work for everyone, not just Shakespeare lovers. Hmm.
0: Let's start with the Shakespeare. When did you come to Chicago? Are, you're not a native.
2: No, I, I was brought up in Portchester, New
0: York, went to Portchester High
2: School, which I loved, and I did a lot of stage work there. But really, I came to fall in love with him at Northwestern University outside of Chicago because I had the most extraordinary teacher, Dr. Wallace Bacon, who made even the messengers in Shakespeare live with blood and hunger and and, and humanity. And, and I remember every quarter going home, my parents were in bed and I would read to them. I would ex- tell them the notes, the things I learned about Coriolanus or Titus. And really, that's where it began. And then I did a few workshops when I was an actress in New York here in the 70s. Um, nothing big, but still surrounded by people who love Shakespeare and was very unhappy here, quite frankly, in New York and went missed Chicago, went back there in 1980. And luckily for me, I had to have a third knee operation because I couldn't walk for about 18 months, maybe longer than that. So what's an actress going to do? And because of that rather horrible time in my life in terms of you know panic attacks about how am I going to earn a living I um, I started teaching Shakespeare to professional actors once a week on Monday nights, and that those original ten people, all friends of mine, whom I acted with, said yes, they came, and then that became forty people over two nights, for years and years. And so, I think I trained them a little bit, but mostly they trained me. And a few years later, in 1986, we did that first play.
0: And that was in Chicago. You would move back to Chicago at some point. Exactly. But not to gloss over, you mentioned very quickly that you went to Northwestern. Mm Mm-hmm. Was Were you doing classical training at that time? What was the scene? Because Northwestern is, of course, spoken about a lot as one of the great theater schools around exactly. the country. And was it at that time? No,
2: it wasn't at that time, quite frankly. I mean, now it's just... It's totally different. So, I mean, now they have the most marvelous people, many of whom, by the way, won Tony Awards last uh, on Sunday. But I have to say... Um, when I was there, it was very different. Uh, Alvina Kraus had just left. The, the theater school was kind of just sort of looking to f- get its legs back again. But the wonderful thing I found, of course, Frank Alotti was there when I was there, and Denis Zacek from Victory Gardens Theater. The great thing that I got um, from Northwestern was this... Shakespeare professor and the most brilliant education in political science sociology english literature i mean i took so many history classes so the breadth of my of my you know studies really grounded me and centered me
1: did you did you go to northwestern as a theater major i did mm-hmm. i did it, intending to to do something it, with Shakespeare, or just uh, that that love grew while you were in school.
2: Intending to win a Tony Award for acting, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so that didn't happen.
0: Uh-huh. So now back to the the Shakespeare workshop you were talking about. When you were doing that, you were charging your fellow actors at this right. point to 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 be in that workshop. And what kind of work were were you doing there? What was it? Was it just scene work? What Yeah, well I think,
2: I think what I told them and, and what we did really for many, many years was I would give them all a monologue to do and then we would work on scene work together. And and so mm, Shakespeare informed us, they informed me, and, and people came in and out of um, of the... Aidan Quinn was in it, Shannon Cochran. I mean, some phenomenal, brilliantly talented people who really taught me much more than I could have ever given them. But the, the, the spine of it was the soul of Shakespeare and, and we really were I, I suppose shocked that the that, that there were no one had started a Shakespeare theater in Chicago. Can
0: you can you talk a little about what the Chicago scene was? A lot of us here, you know, Chicago is a very vibrant theater scene. But in this period, certainly the Goodman had been in place for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Steppenwolf at, at that time would have been just starting to come together. Babies. You yeah. had a company like the St. Nicholas, which right. begat. But what, what overall was going on in Chicago theatrically, not just with classical work?
2: Well, we had the big theater, mostly road shows quite frankly. And then we had the Goodman Theater and the Art Institute that was doing, you know, some classical work and other work. But mostly it was it sort of started burgeoning in the seventies, late seventies, with Stuart Gordon and the organic theater, Larry Sloan's um, and Billy Peterson's uh, Remains Theater. Dennis and Marcy starting uh, Victory Gardens and Northlight beginning. And it was all these wonderful, really just creative people in storefronts, literally. I mean, the, in the, uh, the roof of the Red Lion Pub had about 49 or 50 seats. And, and, and all of this happened from 49 or 50 seats when you think about it. But, of course, we had Shakespeare. But I think the most important thing that happened in the 70s was that we learned and we felt that there was a great theater audience in that town and that we wanted to serve them. And and it it was wide open. It was wide open for good work.
1: Now, before we move beyond the period of when you were Mm. taking in these students and, and training them... Your own professor Wallace Bacon had had taught you and you subscribe to the folio theory of, of directing explain what that is working with the text of Shakespeare
2: right well uh, Wallace didn't teach the folio no, he, he, d- he just taught you know like like he was a, a, an angel sent to us from heaven um, Patrick Tucker quite frankly taught me he was a, a, a He he taught at the Royal Shakespeare Company with John Barton. John Barton was really the head and sort of revolutionized for us. He put put the context of Shakespeare. He sort of demystified it when you look at uh, like alliteration and assonance and, um, you know, uh, punctuation that's – from the first folio, which was as close as we're ever going to get to Shakespeare's manuscripts, because it was put together by his acting company. And so you have all these sort of signals and guideposts to look for in the text, and it completely takes the mystery out of it, other than, of course, the genius. But it helps an American actor, it certainly helped me and uh, the people I work with, just sort of speak the language clearly, but always emotionally, always knowing that the punctuation was the emotion. It was character, and the sound of the language is indeed character. And so you, you, you'd start, if you let the sound, if you'd start feeling the sound of Shakespeare, and you start listening and looking at the punctuation, suddenly a character developed, and you didn't even know it was developing. And it just sort of pours out of you. It's kind of remarkable, and, and it's very informative.
1: So it basically uh, goes back to as, as far back as possible, the original text which, of course, is not his, but put together by people who were his actors, and looks at the punctuation to inform the actress to right. how to deliver the lines.
2: And that's exactly right. Not only that, when Shakespeare, Shakespeare only had like about a half a day to rehearse all of his plays. Think about that. Isn't that shocking? Hmm. But they were given rolls, <laughs> and they were rolled up pieces of parchment. And quite frankly, they didn't know who had the cue before. They only had the last three words of the speech before. Imagine the listening, Mm -hmm. especially like in Julius Caesar, when you have like 15 people in one thing that that talk. You're really listening to hear those last three words Mm -hmm. so you can go ahead and give your line. So, I mean, things like that you learn. And it's an oral tradition that has been passed down in England from generation to generation. Now, you don't need to know anything about the folio technique in order to do Shakespeare brilliantly because brilliant actors can just do it from, you know, from that genius. But those of us who are not, this is a very helpful way of really
0: understanding the text. In talking about what went on in Shakespeare's day, one of the things I gather we're not too clear on is whether there were really directors or if people just had a text and people were actors and they got up and did it. So... When did you decide you were a director since you said you were trained as an actor?
2: I was I had I always I asked people to become the artistic director of this theater about 22, 23 years ago. I remember asking someone who's become a very close friend now, Brian Bedford. He was in Chicago at some function, and I was there, and I said, look, I'm, I'm trying to start a Shakespeare theater. Would you come and be an artistic director and help us? And he said, yes, darling, just raise the money and I'll come in. <laughs> and and, But nobody, of course, came in. You just have to do the work yourself, don't you? I had no idea I could direct and I still don't actually have an idea about that, but but you just did it because there was nobody else there to do it, and so I did this thing on the roof, and it was people said they loved it. And then, of course, oh, you'll love this story, and this is true. My mom and dad are in the front seat of the car. I, being the child, are in the back seat of the car. I'm visiting them. I said, Mom, because of the the thing Henry V on the roof, I I've just raised almost a hundred thousand dollars. And um, we want to do a play at a real theater in September, October of next year, and both almost in unison said, "For God's sakes, Barbara, pick a play somebody's heard of." So of course I did Troilus and Cressida, that had never <laughs> been done there because it was my favorite play at the time, and um, and it was actually it was a very smart move. Although I didn't do it because it was smart, I did it because I loved it.
1: Well, just backing up, yeah. the, the the rooftop mm-hmm. was doing it outdoors for. A number of weeks on a rooftop of a restaurant in Chicago for a $3,000 budget. Right. And all the actors were equity, but they worked for free. They did. And everything went into basically, I guess, paying the restaurant or whatever you had to do to.
2: I didn't have to pay the restaurant anything. Uh, I, we, You know, we had to, you know, borrow some costumes and, you know, uh, things like that and some poster money. And I don't even remember what we spent the $3,000 on. Um, all I remember is that it was full, oh, it was full every night over the two or three week period. And here's the thing. I invited some of the great patrons of the arts that I knew from my acting experiences to come. And I realized we only had one shot to get them if they didn't come that night. If it rained on the roof of that pub, we were dead. We wouldn't have a theater. So it rained on the buildings next door to this rooftop pub. It rained in the alley. It rained at the Biograph Theater across the street where Dillinger (laughs) was shot. And... It never rained. It was like Shakespeare was holding a forty by sixty foot umbrella over us. <laughs> it was rather am- amazing, and we then established a board of directors and they helped raise that money
1: well, that was the summer of one thousand nine hundred and eighty six so how did you raise the the, the hundred thousand that was i 'll
2: well, tell you the first gift this is This is a very beautiful story. Someone from Chase Manhattan Bank, New York was happened to be in the audience. And he called me, and he was the husband of, or was going to be the husband of, one of my best friends. But I had, I didn't know him that well at that point. And I get a call uh, in my apartment, which was the office, from uh, someone at Chase Manhattan Bank, New York, saying they've heard all about us, they believe in the idea, and they were sending us ten thousand dollars. And that ten thousand dollars went right into the bank, and it hired our first managing director. Mm -hmm. So we could grow in a business way because I certainly know my limitations and that would be one of them.
0: And how fast did the press begin to pay attention to you? Because that's always the, you know, finding the money to do it is one challenge. The other thing is is drawing audiences and getting attention.
2: Oh, that's for sure. Well, we had some bit of good luck. I mean, for the Rooftop Pub, one of the Cranes Chicago business, the first review we ever received was this line. It said, William Shakespeare would have loved this, hmm. and that was that was that helped a lot. And that goes and, right on the first brochure. Yeah, I Abraham, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have money for brochure, but certainly on something that was Xeroxed. But but the next one, um, the Chicago Tribune, their first line was uh, something of a miracle happened at the Ruth Page Theater last night. The problem, the, and we got brilliant reviews. But three or four days later, the stock market crashed in '87, mm-hmm. and so from full houses, we went to you know it was it was shaky, it was very shaky.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you did you sustain? You moved. You didn't stay on the rooftop, obviously. You did. You did right. find yourself a real theater. Right. The for next
2: for that Troilus and Cressida, we found the Ruth Page Theater, which used to be a. A, a kind of, a, I think, a Mason's home, a place or is now a dance studio called the Ruth Page Dance Studio on Dearborn between Ma- Maple and Oak. And so there were lots of, um, you know, dancers, little kids and adults and some wonderful, wonderful people. And we were there for 11 years in, in a very big room with a very high ceiling. So lights looked really good there. And we made it. Michael Merritt, who... Um, was a wonderful uh, uh, set designer. We designed our first very serious thrust, and the thrust is a terrific thing for Shakespeare because the audience circles the theater, and and it's hard to fall asleep when you're surrounded by, you know, swords and actors.
1: Well, you just used a very important word in the growth of your theater company, the word ceiling. Because it had a ceiling. It was in a building, which meant you could do more than a couple of weeks in the summer. <laughs> you could do actually year-round if you wanted to. Right. So did you then expand in 87 and onward, expand the schedule, the number of productions you did?
2: Well, we couldn't because, you know, one of the things that I was determined is to have um, Actors' Equity Association actors because they have the craft and the experience to do Shakespeare, and you really you, you need that, I think. And so we had a tremendously – so I had to pay them. I wanted to pay them. I insisted on paying them or I wouldn't do it. And so for that, with that $100,000, we, we hired maybe they were, I'm not sure if there were 10 or 12 equity actors in Troilus and Cressida playing the part of Achilles, Ulysses, Pandarus and all of that. And one of the actors, he was offered a movie on TV. He could have made $15,000 on that movie. And he turned it down in order to be in the first show, making $129 a week. Hmm. That's, that's really dedication.
0: And despite the advice of your parents, it seems in those early years, you weren't just picking Shakespeare's greatest hits. Because no. looking at this, you, you started with Troilus, Antony and Cleopatra, Cymbeline, King John. I mean, you, you weren't just doing the comedies.
2: No, well, I, I kind of, I, 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 what I did, I did for love. I, I love Cymbeline. It was always a great. I've done it three times now. Um, I've done Troilus three times. King John really speaks to me now. Uh, you'll love this line. When I was I was invited to Czechoslovakia. This is sort of jumping ahead till. 1989 but the communists were still in power the wall had not come down it was May of 89 and I was invited to go see theaters all across Czechoslovakia and I saw no happy eyes people were so depressed I mean Russian tanks were all over the place It, it was a terribly painful political situation and family situation and, and I the lines from King John kept running through my mind, and I'm going to paraphrase it now. When laws can do no right, let it be lawful that law itself is perfect wrong. Now, we could use th- those lines today, and it would fit many laws that have been passed of recent times. You see what I'm saying? Mm. And so I felt it was a very, very contemporary, important play to do.
0: Did you look at your productions as being political in those days, or I, now, for that matter? N-
2: you know, um, it's interesting. Roman Polak, who was a director from Czechoslovakia, who, who in, because of him, I went there. He came and saw the 1988 production of Antony and Cleopatra. And um, I had an African-American, uh, Bruce A. Young Antony, and a brilliant um, Caucasian actress, Barbara Robertson and they were the Antony and the Cleopatra, just because they were absolutely perfect for the roles and 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 Roman Pollock from Czechoslovakia in broken English said what what statement politically are you making this is before the show and I said um nothing <laughs> I don't know I couldn't answer the question and so after the show he comes to me and he says what you talk about everything political you do in this show and I said yeah but they're not my politics so much as I just tried to bring out everybody else's you know it's Shakespeare and for every character in every play everyone has a different political perspective every character because you never know really what Shakespeare was feeling and so you know um, he said "Um, I'll never forget White hand on black thigh, you know. I mean, it it was, but it wasn't. It, it. I suppose that's how I deal with it. I deal with, I look. I'm very political. I'm, I'm very. uh, Politics is very important. Are very important to me. But you try and uncover the onion, you know, peel away the layers. I do know, having directed Troilus and King John so many times that I will never get to the core of what Shakespeare was talking about. I totally get that. But I also know that if I live another 20 years and I'm doing my sixth production, they'll be totally different because as the world changes, he changes and I change. And the audience is changing. And then again, some things never change. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, on, on your, your theater's website, mm-hmm. it uses the phrase, our uniquely American brand of Shakespeare, Others have described it as Shakespeare Chicago style. What what is your uniquely American brand of Shakespeare?
2: <clears throat> well, um, I, I'm not sure. I think, boy, John, th- that's for somebody else to answer
1: because <laughs> somebody else wrote that. <laughs> yeah, but you know what?
2: It's, we're very passionate. We pat- need to call the marketing <laughs> department, <laughs> Chicago Shakespeare,
0: and see what they mean. It's
2: very passionate. Uh I feel that it's very grounded in in the grit of all of our lives are messy, you know what I mean? And we don't try and make anything pretty. We just try and do what we feel.
0: Well, there always used to be talk of a Chicago style of acting, not specifically classical. So do you think that might play into it? Or do you think in seeing work elsewhere that there is, in fact, a different style to Chicago acting than there is elsewhere?
2: I don't know. Look, I think great acting is great acting. I've seen great acting in London, in Paris, in Milan, in New York. I've seen great acting in sub- suburbs. So uh, th- the bottom line is truth and, and, and kind of a, a, an ability to connect with another soul. And that happens all over the world.
1: Well, you typically, though, for your shows, use Chicago-based actors as opposed to bringing in names from New York or Hollywood is right. basically Right. That's correct. true. That's yeah. true. I mean, you've had some names, so to speak, mm-hmm. but mostly local actors. Right. Do you have like a, not, not a rep company, but like actors you keep going back to over and over again that you keep reusing because you know them, they know you, you right. know their style?
2: Well, we have a, a great nucleus in Chicago of, I would say, probably over 100 actors who are really brilliantly classically trained and tremendous and we try and pull from that group and we can't. We go to other places of course. But I'll tell you what almost every director has said, especially directors from Um, overseas they say they could it's rare to find a city that has so many outstanding actors you can get a great actor to play a small role in chicago so what that means is is the ensemble is really strong as opposed to the one leading actor you know what i mean you can get a you can get 22 people Um, that's extraordinary in any town
1: well, I hate to use the word competitors, but you have a couple other very strong theaters, The Goodman and uh, Steppenwolf. Do they pull from that same pool of actors? Oh, they
2: do. This is my greatest headache. Oh, <laughs> woe is me. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard. You have to cast early, and, and, and it's, it's, it's the toughest thing that we do. What, the old adage, I think it was at Rosemary Tischler's office, there was a sign many years ago. She said, um, you know, casting is 90% of directing, and it is. The actors make me look really good.
1: Mm. And and how about that competition? Do you feel that makes you a, a better theater because you have strong theaters also in Chicago?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think strong theaters, like strong baseball teams, they breed strong. The competition is very important. But the, you also can be friends with um, your, your competitors in Chicago, which I truly love. There's a, a heartfelt uh, respect and caring, which I need. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I won't use his name, but someone, a, a star in London once said to me, Barbara, you're always talking about your good buddies in Chicago. And he says, here in London, in the theater community, he says, we're merely acquaintances just waiting to be enemies. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd rather be in Chicago.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I should say. <laughs> in looking over the shows that you've done over the years, you fairly quickly come across things call such things as Shakespeare's greatest hits, willpower, and what for some might indeed be an oxymoron, short Shakespeare. Can you talk a little about those? I'll start with the last question. Short Shakespeare is... um,
2: is our school program, because, you know, schools are on bus schedules, and it's so important, and Shakespeare is on every school curriculum. So we take Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet or whatever, and we condense it to 75 or 80 minutes so the kids can come, they can see the show, they can talk to the actors. We do two performances, you know, a day. And a lot we have had, now this is the most wonderful number, um, this coming season, we will have had our one millionth high school student seeing Shakespeare since we started this program. Mm-hmm. That's pretty right. special. 50,000 kids come a year to see our shows.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. But they're getting the condensed version, which to some people is anathema that Shakespeare should always be complete. Do you have any sense now over the years of whether you've been able to shift some of those million students into coming for the whole thing?
2: Well, we do because we have um, we have several programs. One is called Bard Card, but I don't want to get too specific in that I actually met um, a, a woman with her five-year-old last summer who said when she was a high school student, she went to the old theater and she came to see Shakespeare, and now she's bringing her kids. It made me feel very old, <laughs> but it was also very gratifying. And that's happening because a little Shakespeare is better than none
1: because mm, okay. he makes you laugh. Got to get them in the door. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about the other two that, that Howard mentioned? Um, it's Shakespeare's greatest hits, was yes, it? Yes.
2: Well, that was that was interesting. We, they wanted us to do something in free Shakespeare in, in Grant Park. And this I mean, is back
1: like in the late eighties, right? Then.
2: And and so I thought, well, what can I do? I, I, I couldn't afford to do a whole play there. It would just I just couldn't do it. So I came up with this idea that we would do, punctuate since it was free for everybody, that we would punctuate like the great greatest hits, like the balcony scene or love is merely a madness from As You Like It or, um, you know, the, the big fight with the four teenagers in Midsummer Night's Dream. And we would punctuate it, for instance, uh, the, the Midsummer Night's Dream thing, uh, when Hermia and Helena are having their fight, and, and, they're, you know, and they're, her- Hermia calls her a tall maypole, and they call her a dwarf, an acorn. So when the scene was over, we heard, you know, Randy Newman's song, Short People Got No Reason to Live. So, it, it, the, you know, it was all punctuated by rock or classical music depending on the moment and it was it's great fun and it was it it turned out to be a very popular um you know night in the theater Mm -hmm. outside
1: speaking of getting people in the door you went from a rooftop in uh, 1986 to 1999 a beautiful 23.2 million dollar theater right on navy pier and at that time people were thinking well kind of crazy to go down to Navy Pier where they have a giant Ferris wheel and hot dog stands, and in the dead of winter, who's going to come to see a show? Uh, what made you decide to do that, and what what has been the result since then?
2: Well, Chris Anderson, my uh, executive director and business partner, and I we were, we were asked for a few years before we agreed to it to to be there, but we wanted to be near Steppenwolf or we wanted to be near Goodman. We we couldn't quite see ourselves. Which are in there. a different area of Chicago, exactly. And 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 they kept. Upping the money, Who's actually. That? The, the, the Metropolitan Peer Association, uh, Exposition Authority. Um, it's a combination of city and state funds, and they had much more vision than I had. Because I I, I I didn't see us, us there at that one moment. Although I, I must tell you, there was a moment in 1987 when the British Royal Navy was at Navy Pier, which at that moment in 87 was totally dilapidated. And I was on the – they invited, you know, hundreds of people there to have gin and tonics and, you know, be there and say hello to the sailors. And so we – we were there, and the pier was in rack and ruin. It was before they had re- re- redid it. and But the view of Chicago from the pier was so beautiful that I said to them, this is before I had directed that original Troilus and Cressida, I said to my friends, this is going to become the home of Chicago Shakespeare Theater. And they did spit takes into their gin and tonics because <laughs> it was ridiculous thought. And Meanwhile, fast forwarding to n- 1997 when we signed a lease, we had no idea it was going to be successful. We really we realized that no one else was going to offer us all that money, um, and we were again we couldn't have imagined it. Now I can't imagine not being there. It's the most beautiful place in the city, and when all of our visitors come in from other places in the country and from Europe and all around the world, they look at it, Peter Brook. When when he saw it, I mean, it's breathtaking. You just look at it and go, I can't believe it. A city, a state, built a Shakespeare theater, a classical theater for its citizens. Now that's enlightenment.
1: You actually have two theaters in the same building, the 500-seat big theater with a thrust stage and then a 200-seat black
0: box. That's right. It seems, if I'm following the chronology correctly, that it was about the time you moved there that you began to expand beyond just Shakespearean works. Is exactly. that true?
2: Exactly. It's, it's true and, and inf- deeply influenced by Chris. We realized that being on Navy Pier, we couldn't be just a Shakespeare company because, let's face it, there are almost 9 million people a year that visit Navy Pier. And 5, five million of them come in the summer. So we knew we had to expand the programming. We wanted to try and get some of those people in. So many families come there. We thought, well, I think the first year, I'm trying to remember now, it's all pancaked together. I think we brought in um, a co-production with uh, with another theater in Chicago, um, Marriott Lincolnshire, Uh, joseph and the amazing technicolor dreamcoat and doing that and seeing families come in and everybody having so much fun in the summer wearing their shorts it just opened up a whole new programming you know section for us and we've certainly continued that
1: which is why i would assume the next week you're doing funk it up about nothing and then in july willy wonka that's
2: exactly right for families for people Mm. who want to have fun in the summertime. It's, you know, our our regular theater goers, you know, are, are away or not not interested in coming to such a busy place in the summertime, but it's a fabulous, fun place, and they do fireworks every Wednesday and Saturday night. The city does fireworks right outside of our glass, lo- you know, windowed lobby, and so it's, it's spectacular, really, you know, and um, it's such a fun, and you know, I think Shakespeare would have loved it, <laughs> because after all, he was surrounded by bear baiting, and Houses of ill repute and God knows what else. But there's so much life on Navy Pier. It's always busy. And I love that. I love the activity.
1: And and Willy Wonka will be the musical with Candyman and all the other songs. Exactly right.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. We're very excited. Joe Leonardo is directing. and We have just a tremendous cast. And... um, So I think we're starting rehearsal quite soon, as a matter of fact, on Friday.
1: And do you think Shakespeare would like having a musical in the theater with his name on it?
2: I think he'd be thrilled. You know what? (laughs) Shakespeare, above all, besides being a great writer and probably a good actor, although I don't think he was a great actor from what he said about himself, you know, Sweet William, is that um, what he – I think what he really loved was bringing people and filling the seats up because he was, remember, a producer of his own theater. And he counted those pennies – And it made him a rich man. And we're a wonderful not-for-profit, which, of course, means that we're a public trust, that we belong to the public. And so we want to get as much of a diverse audience as we can in those seats.
0: As you talk about diversity, when uh, the articles began coming out about the Regional Tony Award that you were receiving, I think you were quoted as saying that you were shocked because in many ways you thought you were better known – internationally than at home right. when did the international work begin and how did that begin
2: well the, the truth is I, I didn't when I was when I wrote our first mission statement which was maybe in 86 or 87 and I didn't really know what a mission statement was so you just have to know I did say it would become an international center and it was just a prescient moment because don't because it wasn't thought about it was written about but but when um, when we moved to the pier, I got I, mean, I had a very close friend who uh, died this year. His name was Michael Halifax. He was the chief administrator of the National Theatre in London and the royal shakespeare theater and and the royal court and and he would tell people about what was going to happen at the theater, this brilliant new Shakespeare theater, blah, blah blah was opening up, and of all phone calls I get, I get a call from 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 him saying Peter Brook wants to talk to you and i went oh my god and so I went over to London and then to Paris to meet with Peter. Peter
0: Brooke called you. Well,
2: called. He called Michael Halifax, <laughs> or Michael call called you. him, wow. and he said he wanted to speak to me and he wanted to bring some shows over there. And it was rather remarkable. We have we've had Catherine Samy from the Comedie Francaise doing Le dernière lettre. I mean, there, we we just put it out there that we wanted to bring in the great artists of the world for the people of Chicago, and and it's been. I mean, look, we brought in Declan Donnellan's Russian Twelfth Night. How sensational. And the, the Russian community came in from Chicago. You know, I mean, it, it's pretty beautiful when when you bring in the Abbey Theatre and you see all these wonderful Irish people in the theatre that didn't even know we had a Shakespeare theatre. And And, I mean, there's a power there because then this theatre belongs to the communities in the
0: city. And... That's very beautiful, because then it belongs to the whole city. It's very important that... But it's been a two-way street. You've gone to other countries with productions. Well,
2: our first... uh, I think our our first four-way was Gary Griffin, my um, associate artistic director, who directed Color Purple and the recent Saved. Um, Gary directed Pacific Overtures in our studio theatre brilliantly well and we took that to the Donmar Warehouse and uh, a few years ago and that won three uh, Olivier Awards one for best revival of a musical and then um, we were invited I know there were other things but then we were Michael Boyd invited me to do the Henry Fours at the Complete Works Festival two years ago in Stratford-upon-Avon and um, and other things I'm sure.
1: Hmm. Let's talk about you as both artistic director and director. You've directed some 30 shows at your theater, but you've been the artistic director since the very beginning. How do you structure a season, and how do you decide what you want to direct yourself or have other people direct?
2: Uh, Oh, John, John, help (laughs) me figure that one out. (laughs) I, I, I mean that with all my heart. It's um, it it's it's tough because as any artistic director will tell you, and including a friend of mine, Richard Eyre, who was you know directed at the artistic director of the National for so many years, he said that his directing suffered greatly because it's our job as artistic director to to you know attract artists and and to you know. Give to them and to nurture them. Um, so your work does go a little bit on the back seat because it, in the back burner, because it must, because that's what, you know. On the other hand, I love directing so much. It's what I really feel happiest doing and so um but when i so i the the truth is is i have no idea what i'm going to be doing after i direct macbeth next season because i haven't had time to think about it but i do know i have two fabulous directors you know who i'm trying to get for that season and once i get them set then i'll figure out my journey
1: well you've got the 2008 2009 season on paper what about the seasons beyond that. Do you already have in mind what you're doing? Well, I, haven't,
2: I don't have in mind what I'm doing, in all honesty. No, no, not you
1: personally, for the theater.
2: Yes. I. But I, nothing I want to talk about yet, because I don't have, mm. um, you know, I don't have them. But there are some remarkable directors out there who want to come to the theater and, and you know, I'll try and hire them. And, and, and again, it's not just Shakespeare, and it's not just classical work. You know, we've done world premieres. We did a wonderful musical. Oh my God, it's so adorable. Called How Can You Run with a shell on your back. Great for five to, you know, nine-year-olds. And, and you know, that kind of, you know, looking for new work is very, very important to us right now.
1: Well, what about for existing work, like Shakespeare, for example? When you put together a season, do you say to yourself... So, so-and-so so has directed this production elsewhere. I'd like to have him or her directed in our theater. Is that one of the sometimes, ways that you look at it? Sometimes,
2: yes. Uh, sometimes. For instance, I saw, this is years ago, but when we were just moving into the building, I saw Joe Dowling's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, which I thought was absolutely spectacular. Mm-hmm. And so when I knew we were moving into the new building like two or three years before when we were just signing, getting it together, I said, Joe, promise me in our first season you will do that show for us. And he did, and he came, and it was a huge hit. And, you know, yes, so that's one way. But then sometimes I can just find a director whose work really touches me deeply and and just say, what do you want to direct? What's inside of you that needs to come out? Mm-hmm. And that's really important to me because that's the strongest impulse, isn't it? Needing to do something.
1: How about... Actors, do you ever craft shows around knowing who's available as
2: actors? Oh, I certainly do. I mean, I would be foolish not to because we have such a great group. And, um, yes, the answer is yes. I've been, I, I, as a matter of fact, I talked to two at the Tony Awards you know, two people that two guys, it's a that great place to work on it your it casting, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, just keep your fingers crossed.
1: Well, not not future, but past. What are some examples of shows you've created because you knew certain actors wanted to do it or they were available?
2: Well, uh, t- to tell you the truth, one of them was very recently was the Comedy of Errors. I had um, really four people for the. Antipholus twi- twi- and the Dromeos. And I thought, if these people are available, this show must be done because they are delicious and hilarious. And to have all four of them in the same room is an honor. Mm. And lo and behold, it, it just worked beautifully and the show went brilliantly well.
0: You've touched on this somewhat obliquely, but I have to ask we started talking about your very humble beginnings for the company. Obviously, the company has grown. It's got more real estate. It's got bigger theaters to fill. Has that proven to be a challenge, or has that forced you to change what you want the company to be?
2: It's forced. It's fo- You know what? I, yeah I, am thinking of the Tonys when Daniel and Jen sang Move On. I mean, that song for every artist. From I Sunday think. in the Park. Yes, from Sunday in the Park. That just gives me chills every time I hear it. I, I can. There's nothing else in the room but that song for me whenever I hear it because you can never stay the same in life. You know, you, you the, the thing about the pro- biggest problem I have with Shakespeare is he only wrote 37 or 38 plays, and, and, and that's outrageous because if he had written 150, it would have been better. Look how many Lope de Vega wrote. I mean, probably over 300 or something like that. And that's very frustrating because, you know, you have to put Shakespeare next to, by contrast, with other great playwrights, and and so the 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 challenge is how do you keep your Shakespeare audiences happy? How do you bring in and expand to do other work so you can expand everybody's you know perspective on life because that's what art does, right? and and sometimes that's very challenging because we have you know there are people that just want to see shakespeare or people that just want to see you know um musicals and we're trying to we're trying to reach out to really lots of different
1: groups. Well, does your subscriber base or your benefactor base criticize you then when you do Willy Wonka? They say you should be doing more Shakespeare? To no, do you, do no. To?
2: I think in the summer, you know... They, they understand. They totally understand. I, 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 no, they, they... We have the most amazing board of directors. This is true. They are... They have given... They have given Chris and I just... An, they, they... They trust us, and there's a real faith... You know, that our intent is to try and do the best work we can for the greatest amount of people. And and there are no rules. That, that's the thing. We can't make any rules in art. You just have to uh, really, truly work on impulses. And, and I have a great associate artistic director, uh, not associate, excuse me, a great pro- creative producer, Rick Boynton, who who brings in new work for us and has an enormous taste and you know and networking throughout the country and with people like that around me and uh, Bob Mason and Gary Griffin it's it's I'm a pretty lucky woman because these are people that are constantly stirring a pot that are constantly pushing me beyond the bou- any boundaries and here's the thing about Chicago and this is really important Chicago is a generous and forgiving city. You can fall down and do work that is just not so good. And then what they'll say is, okay, so get up, brush yourself off, and do better next time. To be a professional, to have that kind of grace in your life, that means you're not afraid of going out on that limb and just taking a big leap off And knowing you can fall down. It's okay. But then you know you can try again. Most people in our business don't get a chance to do that because they're judged and scorned, and then sometimes there's no work for them after. And that's heartbreaking. But Chicago is different.
0: I don't want to seem self-serving in asking this (laughs) question, but I want to ask, do you think receiving the Regional Tony Award will have an impact on the life of your theater?
2: Yes, I do. It's already had a, an impact. A very surprising one. I mean, first of all, I'll say the obvious. For public rel- PR, has been unbelievable. And raising money, I'm, we're going into a capital campaign. We want to build up an extension, a bigger theater, a thousand-seat proscenium next door. I mean, all we need we need attention now. But the most touching thing for me, and the thing that I could never have imagined until I lived through it, is how happy... So many people are for this award, for us, because they feel it's their theater, and they love it. That's been the most overwhelmingly beautiful part about this.
0: Well, you started to touch on it. Before we started uh, on the air, you commented that you didn't want to talk about yourself. You <laughs> wanted to talk, and not even about the past. You wanted to talk about the present and the future. <laughs> so you just mentioned a thousand-seat theater. Mm-hmm tell us about that and tell us about other plans for the company
2: well okay now these are these are plans
0: Um, these are dreams because I'm I'm I'm, I'm a dreamer but you have a national platform to talk about we
2: do well here's the thing we need a different palette. We need as many different palettes as we can because, I mean, I I have to say there are plays that I want to do that I can't do on a a thrust. I'd love to do some Noel Coward. I'm dying to direct a musical. Um, I want to bring artists in that really need a proscenium stage, which we don't have. And some of the great work, um, for instance, um, some of the great artists of the world need prosceniums. And and there are, I mean, there are... There are plays that are hurt by thrust stages. Quite frankly, contemporary work is not does not live well. In this Comedy of Errors I was telling you about, a third of the com- that Comedy of Errors was written by Ron West. It was a, 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 a Second City writer who now lives in L.A. A third of the dialogue was contemporary in 1940 in Shepard and Film Studio. And I found directing that part of it very difficult because I have actors coming in down aisles, and it shouldn't have been. They should have been coming out from the proscenium left and proscenium right. Well, uh, slamming door far yes, if that was any part
0: of it, doesn't very, work easily there.
2: Gary Griffin directed um, a Fleanery, or David Ives did the I love David Ives, did the adaptation, and and we had to make the proscenium into, excuse me, make the thrust into a proscenium, which was not pretty, um, and we, you know, we lost seats in the house, but you have got to have a proscenium. So there are, artistically, we are bursting and needing to do that. Also, we have thousands of kids that can't get in to see our our Shakespeare, our other work, our family stuff, because the seats are gone. We have this demand, and I really believe that you have to have uh, three beautiful palettes, three totally different palettes, in order to do, to be fertile and to be creative. And this, the really most important part of this is so that we can go into the future when, you know, when the next generation of artistic and executive director come in, that they have... I know we can do this that they have a great palette, so they want to come to Chicago you know this is for the future
1: do you ever look beyond Chicago taking your work from your theater to other theaters always like Broadway for example oh. or, or New York
2: Well, now, that's a really interesting question, John, because now I'm going to be prejudiced here. And, you know, I'm an ex-New Yorker, so my heart, my family is here. But I'm going to tell you something that I don't know how this will sit with you, but it's sort of how I feel. I'm not sure how interested New York is in Shakespeare if you don't have uh, a famous person playing a lead. Um, I'm not sure about that. There seems to be very little interest. We have much more interest, you know, in other places because they're... But I would love to be so wrong about that. That's the challenge. <laughs> Prove <laughs> me wrong about that. Of course, we'd love to come here. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a demand. I'm not sure. What do you think? Can I ask you a question?
0: I You you can ask. It's, <laughs> it's really hard to say. I think, you know, in a city like New York where the media pays attention to what seems most like what's happening elsewhere in entertainment, there's there's really a fight for attention, and and certainly celebrity brings attention. Just doing I good do work is, is hard, and there are some very solid companies that continue to do that work. There are places like Theater for a New Audience, Absolutely. And CSC and all, who may occasionally bring in stars, but, but do that solid work. To bring it to a commercial right. venue uh, needs needs that that extra I push.
2: I know that. I know that. That's why I'm I'm not saying we're not interested. I'm just saying I'm not sure that New York uh, is that interested.
0: And and I'm curious asking about the work. You know, we yeah. we almost talked about you accidentally becoming a director. <laughs> Do you ever have a desire to do work totally outside of the classical sphere yourself as a director?
2: Yes, I do, without a doubt. Um, Well, of course, I'm going to be directing an opera, which Verdi's um, uh, Macbeth um, at the Lyric Opera, but that's, of course, kind of classical, isn't it? Um, But yes, when I find the right piece of material, I would love very much to do that. Hmm. But it has to be right. So that's, again, when the right script comes over my desk, uh, I will do it.
1: That has to be right for your current theater. What about for your, your new 1,000-seat theater when when that's
2: Well, fifth? yes, won't that be fun?
1: <laughs> would, would you see yourself then doing musicals? Would you see yourself doing Absolutely. other dramas? Absolutely,
2: without a doubt, without a doubt. I have a T-shirt. What I really want to do is direct musicals. <laughs> 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 so I will one day, I have no doubt. You know, it's, I, I think the one thing I've learned is that, um, and this is, this is how we feel, is that anything's possible. Because what we've done, Chris Henderson said to me yesterday, he said, Barbara, what you've done, what we've done together is impossible. And, and maybe that's the message, is that you just find something you love, try and do it, and you never know what's going to happen.
1: I think that's a wonderful way to say thank you, Barbara, for being with us today on Downstage Center. Very good sentiment. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Barbara, for the American Theater Wing. I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.